Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hello, and thank you for joining me. Today, of course, is the uh, 27th month, July. Boy, this month is just really just... Uh, <laughs> Like each day, each month, you know, they just kind of move along quickly. Um, it's been kind of warm and muggy here in uh, western Kentucky, and uh, we're going to be experiencing some uh, thunderstorms, I guess, later on today and into tomorrow, which is kind of cool because, you know, it does keep the heat down. But, boy, it sure has been a very rainy month around here. Ah, Heavenly Father, I just give you praise, Lord. I just thank you, I thank you, I thank you. For each and every day, uh, for each and every breath I breathe, and for the things that you do in my life, dear Lord, and those around me, the way you reach out and touch them through, through me. And I just thank you, Lord. And I just ask and pray that um, you just continue to be with each of the family members, uh, personal and church and those people that I think about in prayer and these people that listen here online, I just pray, Lord, that you just touch their hearts, you know, enlighten them, dear Heavenly Father, and for those that do not know you, I pray that uh, some, they will stop and say yes, because you're the, you're the, You're so awesome, Lord. You're so awesome. And I just give you all the praise in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our study here. In the guidepost, Know the Word of Jesus in 30 Days by J. Stephen Lyne. And today is well done, good and faithful. And boy, I'll tell you what, that's that's what I work toward. That's what I want to hear when my days are, are done. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful. A life intense and immense. At the heart of it all today, we continue the theme of the previous chapter, New Life. The life to the full that Jesus promised, a life of love and faith set out in the Sermon on the Mount, the great parable of the talents and the two greatest commandments. And our memory verse for today is... Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And that's Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up to the mount aside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Matthew 5, chapter 1 and 2, or verse 1 and 2, excuse me, Thus begins what is probably the most quoted passage of the Bible, Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Read and admired by people of all religions, and even of no religion, the Sermon on the Mount is about what was 
uppermost in the mind of Jesus, the kingdom of God, appropriately. He delivered, he delivered this Sermon on the Mount, being the new Moses, who revealed God's will to the people, as the first one did on Mount Sinai. Jesus sat down to teach. Taking his seat was, in the Jew's eye, the sign that he was about to speak on an important matter. For them, a great teacher would sit, not stand to speak. Literally, Matthew 5, chapter, uh, verse 2, reads, Opening his mouth, he taught them. A redundancy to us, but for Matthew's readers, a signal that the following words were of great importance. A literacy cue saying, pay attention. Note that the Sermon on the Mount opens with ten blessings, known as the Beatitudes. These correspond to the Ten Commandments, which are the first part of the law that God gave to Moses. The Beatitudes present are present to us not the old law written on stone, but fulfillment of the law written on the heart. And the key term for today is beautiful. Jesus commands his followers to do deeds that are kalos, meaning beautiful, in a moral and spiritual sense. While the pagans thought of their gods as physical beautiful, the Bible presents a God who is beautiful spiritually, overflowing with love and compassion, whose children are to imitate him. The lion's share of today's passage are from the Sermon on the Mount, plus some related passages on the grand theme of the life to the full that Jesus promised his followers. Good grief! Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And that's Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. What Jesus meant here was not being merely upset, but the deepest kind of mourning, something that cannot be concealed or held back. This isn't necessarily grief over one's own state, but over the state of others. The kind of mourning described here is not childish self-pity, but sorrow over one's own sins and failures and over the hurts of others. The truly wise and mature, whether they consider themselves religious or not, have understood for centuries that the lessons worth learning are learned through suffering. Success and happiness do not make us wise or make us grow. Suffering along makes us appreciate life, makes us see what is really worthwhile and what is a waste of time. The heart is stretched through suffering and enlarged. The classic case of this in the Bible is the story of Joseph and Genesis, the grand example of coming about through suffering, turning Joseph from an arrogant spoiled brat to a compassionate brother and leader. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. And that's Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 3. We also rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And that's Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Nothing runs so 
counter to human instinct that this belief that good can come out of sorrow and yet all know it down in our pores. The person we depend on as a friend in need is usually someone who is acquainted with grief himself. Hurting with those who hurt makes us human. If we are truly children of God, we will share the hurts of others. And we can count on being his children when we realize that he alone is our comfort and our pleasure, something we forget when times are good, but which we remember when sorrow comes. The blessing contains a promise. Those who mourn will be comforted. When Jesus read from the scroll of Isaac in his hometown synagogue, the passage included the declaration that he sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to confront all who mourn. The non-assertive ones, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Meekness involves yielding to God. Life is too big for us to take on by ourselves. We need to let go and let God. We need to be willing to let God tame us. Jesus was being true to his Jewish roots when he praised the meek. The great hero of the Old Testament, Moses, was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. And that's Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. On an amazing quality on a man who had talked with God face to face. Because, of course, that is the secret of meekness, aware of the awesomeness of God. We can't help but be humble. The words blessed are the meek would not have startled Jews, but certainly would have caught pagans off guard. Gentleness was not prized in the pagan world. Quite the contrary. If the meek and humble were losers in the game of life, it was the God's will. Humility is something of which the ancient world was not capable. It was virtue brought into the world by the Jews, but spread abroad by Christianity. Taught to be on the lookout constantly for slights and snubs, taught that our self-esteem is the most precious thing in the world. Our culture definitely devalues meekness. Jesus not only praised meekness, but he also modeled it in himself. The Jews imagined their Messiah would be a power figure, putting Israel enemies to flight. Such was the common opinion, and yet some of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah emphasized the gentleness. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king come to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. And that was Zechariah, verse 9, chapter 9. Passages, passages like these would not be fully appreciated until after Jesus' death and resurrection when it became clear that the Old Testament had indeed prophesied a suffering gentle Messiah. With him as a role model, the early Christians could learn the value of meekness. Therefore, as God-chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's Colossians 
chapter 3, verse 12. The one great hunger, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And that's Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Jesus was speaking to the people from whom actual physical hunger and thirst were realities. They had probably all of them known genuine hunger, not knowing where the next meal was coming from. So Jesus was speaking of hunger as an intense longing, an ache. Jesus was telling them what it was a good thing to feel the yearning for goodness as intensely as they felt when starved for food and water. Hunger is a natural state. The sick and dying sometimes cease to hunger. If we cease to feel hungry, we would die. The Bible shows that if we cease to hunger for righteousness, for truth, we are spiritually dead. The kind of blessedness Jesus spoke about, he had expressed centuries earlier on the opening of Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. In the real sense, the longer for God, the hunger for God is the hunger for righteousness, for goodness, for something or someone greater and more enduring than the world with all its ills. In condemning the hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus was calling his listeners not only to individual blessings, but to fellowship with each other, with people who have a common goal. The real community of man is the community of those who seek the truth. To this community, he promises they will be filled. The rule and ritual religion of the Pharisees and the scribes will not fill them. As a did-you-know fact, one of the great saints of the Middle East, Bernard, Quarvex wrote, Whoever feels guilt for his sin and hungers for thirst after righteousness, let him believe in Christ who justifies the ungodly, and he shall have peace with God. And uh, strife killers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And that's Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. This beatitude is not above the love of peace, but the effort to bring it about. Being godlike means making peace. Making trouble and stirring up strife is easy. Nothing delights Satan more than disorder and conflict. To add to the world's disharmony is to take the easy road in life. One of the great misconceptions about the Bible is that it is anti-pleasure, and more specifically, anti-sex. Such a view shows a lack of familiarity with it, for the Bible is anti-many other things not remotely related to sex or to pleasure. From beginning to end, it heartily condemns those who stir up strife and disturb the peace. The book of Proverbs overflows with sentiments like these. Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. And that's uh, chapter 17, verse 1. 
It is to a man's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is a quack to quarrel. And that's verse 23. Like one who seizes a dog by the ears is a passerby who meddles in a quarrel not his own. And that's chapter 26, verse 17. In his list of the acts of sinful nature, Paul condemns sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, but also hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, self-ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Galatians chapter 5, verse 20 through 21. The troublemakers could not inherit the kingdom of God In almost all his letters, Paul had to scold the people about their quarreling, jealously, factions, and gospel against acting like mere men instead of God's people. That's for 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3. And here's another, uh, did you know, when the missionary Euphilus evangelized the barbarian Goth, in 300, he translated the Bible into their language, but he omitted one and two kings on the ground that these books were full of stories of war, and he preferred to keep the warlike Goss attention focused on Christianity due on the Christianity duty to make peace and shun violence. Assaulting the world You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. And that's Matthew verse 5, verse 13. One point of this familiar passage is the faith is to be useful. We ought to add something positive to the world, preserve it from rotting season, with a good living. If we are not salting the world, something is wrong with us. Salt makes something that is tasteless, like the white of an egg, tasty. People who are dedicated to God bring out the flavor in life, in both good and bad times. Paul had this in mind when telling Christians how to behave among unbelievers. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. And that's Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. But the emphasis here is probably not on salt's flavoring qualities, but on its preservative qualities. Since we think primarily of salt as a seasoning, we forget that for much of the human history, it was the only way of preserving food. Pagan culture seemed to be rotting in its immortality and cynicism, while the Jews seemed to be spiritually dead in their stake and sterile ritualism. The Christians were to preserve the world that God loved to keep it from dying. The Jews' sacrifices were salted, salt being a symbol of the incorruptible. In fact, the wood for burning the sacrifices were salted also. The Jews' Bible that is, the Old Testament was referred to as salt. Pagans often made offerings of salt to the gods, and salt themselves was considerable divine. 
Neither as cheap nor as easily available as it is today, salt was valuable and indispensable commodity. Thus a perfect metaphor for the people of God. The Maximum Visibility You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on an end. It gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And that's Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 and 16. Here's another, did you know? At times, Roman soldiers were paid not in coin, but in salt. And the Latin word, Salarium is the root of our word salary. Hmm. The ancient world valued light in a way we cannot grasp. Since our buildings are full of windows and light, it's available at any hour of the day. Even during a power failure, we turn on the battery-powered devices. We have trouble imagining what it would be to go out at night and try to travel even a shortest of distance without light other than the moon. The Roman writer Cicero referred to Rome as light of the whole world. Jesus referred to Jerusalem as the light of the Gentiles. Neither locale lived up to its name. Rome had its majestic buildings but it was a cesspool of corruption and vice. Jerusalem had the temple and its renowned rabbis, but it did not know God. The real light of the world was not nation, but rather the community of those who loved God and their neighbor. Putting the high light under a bowl or bushel referred to the practice of doing this to a lamp when one left the house. Restarting a fire was not easy in ancient times, so instead of extinguishing the lamp, it was placed under something so the flame would continue but not set the house on fire. But obviously this was all a temporary measure for the point of the lamp was to give light, especially so in a typical house of that period with its small windows. Jesus was making the point that his people should never even temporarily hide their light but let it shine for all to see. Regarding good works, the word good. Here is not the usual Greek word A-G-A-T-H-O-S but kalos K-A-L-O-S often translated beautiful. If something is kalos, it is an attractive quality, beautiful in a spiritual and moral sense. That was the beautiful thing you did, Jesus. Followers are to be earnest, honest, giving people who do beautiful things for the world. Beautiful deeds are done not by people obsessed with rules and rituals, but by the whose relationship with their Father gives their lives nervescent vitality. Note that the purpose of the good deeds is to give glory to God, not to ourselves. This same contrast with what Jesus says elsewhere about the hypocrites. Why do they do good works to be admired by others? Here he is saying that doing good deeds 
where they can be observed is fine. So long as the real motivation is bringing glory to God, not puffing up one's own ego. As people in the dark instinctively look toward the light so unbelievers will see the good deeds of those who have their own eyes fixed on Jesus, who on another occasion referred to himself as the light of the world. This is John chapter 8, verse 12. Apparently he thought his light could be shared or perhaps reflected by his followers in the dark world. When we live as God intended, we may be blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a crooked and revived generation, and which you shine like stars in the universe. And that's Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. Did you know the popular stage musical, Godspell, based on Matthew's Gospel, has some songs with lyrics based on the words of Jesus, including Light of the World, based on Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, 16. Discard Parts If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than the whole body into hell. And that's Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 and 30. Literally, the first verse here leads, If your right eye causes you to stumble, the Greek word is S-K-A-N-D-A-L-O-N. And the image is of a stone in the path over which a person trips and falls. We are to rid ourselves of things that cause us to stumble in our walk with God. This follows Jesus' words about committing adultery in one's heart. Obviously, he is not telling a man with a wandering eye to literally gouge out his own eye, but rather to take control of his own thoughts as well as actions. For those who wonder how to resist impure thoughts, the obvious answer is find something better to fill the mind and time. The mind has to think of something. For eye or hand, substitute any pleasure, any habit, even a friend who provides enjoyment but leads us but leads us into sin. A person, I, hands and precious things to Jesus, was telling us that no matter how precious something is, if it's leading us down the wrong path, we must sacrifice it. Though Jesus did not intend his words to be taken literally, his listeners would have had more sympathy with people missing an eye or a limb than we do since there were many more people in that time who had been physically maimed due to accidents, war, legal punishment, and other calamities. In fact, as discussed in chapter 11, the Law of Moses mandated mutilation in the famous eye-for-an-eye principle. The spiritual shudder, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, 
your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And that's Matthew chapter 6, verse 22 through 23. And we're going to end here, and um, we'll we'll, uh, uh, close this out uh, Friday. Well done, good and faithful. Well done, good and faithful. Uh, I want to thank you. Thank you for joining me. And I just pray that you um, have a good rest of the day. Uh, Hump day. (laughs) There used to be a reporter. uh, Oh, where in the heck? uh, Down in Tennessee, there was a reporter. And you knew it was Wednesday because he'd say, Happy Hump Day, you know. So, a camel commercial or whatever that commercial was. But anyway, just kind of getting off track there. I just pray that uh, that you are blessed. I apologize for for what's going on. I don't know what's going on in my voice. I feel like I'm losing it. I guess it's just I'm not really <clears throat> been sleeping under the fan, so that that's possibly uh, what's going on here with my voice here lately. Because it has been so humid, and, you know, especially warm yeah, at night. But I hope and pray that come Friday, um, you know, I'll, I'll have a little better tone. Heavenly Father, I just give thanks for this day. I thank you, dear Lord, once again for this opportunity to share the words. And, and Lord, you know... I just pray that, you know, some of these words touch the people's hearts in some kind of way. For those that know you, I'll kind of refresh, you know, want to build that bridge closer to you. Um, And for those that do not, you know, they want to reach out and and, um, become a part of you, become a part of the family. And I just give you all the praise and thanks in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Be blessed. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.